you're listening to Paper Cuts. I'm your host, Christopher Cardenbicus, and this is a very special edition of the program. We are sitting in Lewis Brawley's studio in Bushwick, uh, right by the JM train. And I'm really excited to talk to Lewis because um, we did a featured reading with him at Pioneer Books uh, in May, I think. Yeah. It's been some time. Um, but what's really wonderful is that talk, you were able to talk about your time, and I'm just going right into the program, shifting from talking to, about Lewis in the third person, and now just directing questions to him. Uh, welcome. This is Paper Cuts. We do this stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lewis, one of the things that's been really great about talking to you and getting to know you since I've been your neighbor for a year now is that you've you've landed here and kind of built a home and studio practice after being essentially homeless for a couple of years, traveling around the world. And we've been witnessing you unpack your, your practice from sketchbooks into a room and now like shoving everything back into book forms. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that accordion uh, movement is like for you? The accordion movement. Well, when I left New York, I had a full studio and, you know, I always dreamt of putting everything in a dumpster and walking away. Uh, <laughs> and the opportunity was afforded me to do the next best thing was to put everything in storage and leave yeah. uh, because of work and other circumstances. So um, it was easier than expected to put all my work away, but what I discovered was that I never stopped making it. So. The process was condensed into books, which I love anyway. I read voraciously and I write stuff for myself. And so working in sketchbooks and also at a handheld format felt really comfortable. So after years of being away, then when I got here, <laughs> it all kind of exploded back out again into like a larger format, larger formats, I guess I should say, you know, bigger paper, canvas. So... Then I'm just thinking, man, it's so difficult these days because of the art world, the way that the world operates to get work out to people, to have people see what you do. Either it's so expensive for people to have an artwork. You know, I work in the art world, so it's just crazy how expensive things are. And also, you know, how do you get, how do you make work accessible to people? So books seem to be a really ideal way to do that. And because I've worked in books anyway, and I seem to work serially, then it kind of uh, fits. So now I'm in the, <laughs> now I'm stumbling back into the page in a, ver in a literal way, like literally trying to get the work back to a size that could be then gotten out to people. Actually, I wanted to just give you the opportunity now to talk about the book that you wrote because you're talking about living in this book space and, and writing constantly, but it's not just writing in like a journal or writing ideas for a sketchbook. You are a published author. Yeah. with the book titled Goner. And what is that book about, Lewis? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that book is about uh, explaining to people um, the incident that took me away from New York, which was uh, meeting an Indian guy who uh, everyone tells me was my guru, <laughs> even though he said gurus are criminals and belong in jail, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, Maybe described as an anti-guru. Yeah, he's described as an anti-guru. And then in the end, it turns out that actually his 
his background is in was in Advaita Vedanta philosophy, and and uh, that's become super popular. That's like you know something now that's anyway. So he was a, he was in some ways a very traditionally grounded person in terms of his background and education and all the rest of it. But there was a time when this guy broke from all that. And that's what made me curious about him. So the book that I wrote was about being an artist confront, confronted with someone who, you know, I'm a pretty cynical person and, and having been brought up in a religious household, I was kind of anti-religion. And then I meet this guy who also seemed to be anti-religion, but was at the same time, I don't know what you call him, I guess a guru, um, an anti-guru, whatever, but a very interesting person. And so when people would ask me, so what are you doing? Are you meditating? Well, no. Are you, do you belong to, a, are you going to take over? Are you going to become like a monk or a swami? No. So what do you do? Well, you know, we drive around and uh, drink coffee and fuck off. So really, you know, and what does he say? Well, he says, you know, it's better to fuck than to talk about love. And, you know, religious people belong in jail. And Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, everybody, all of them were manic depressives and they were fooling themselves and fooling everyone else. You know, the guy was pretty entertaining, actually, right up my alley. Um, So I just was trying to make sense out of that experience of meeting someone who was so uh, unusual you know, there was something about him that I couldn't figure out. So I wanted to make sort of, I have, I become obsessive. <laughs> so I spent five years hanging out with this guy and I ended up traveling with him around the world. And then as he was dying, he was pretty old when I met him. As he was dying, I ended up in the caretaker role, which was complete. I think he chose me because I know nothing about medicine or yeah. nursing or anything. And he was totally self-sufficient, but he needed literally someone to carry him from one place to another. And since I work as an art handler, I can carry valuable objects. So I guess he picked the right person. You know, I wasn't going to interfere with any medical knowledge. And this was someone who refused any kind of medical intervention at all. No painkillers, no doctor visits, no nothing. And he was dying, and he just took care of it himself, which was kind of cool to watch, actually. So I wrote about that. And so you've been in this space in New York for a year and a half now? Yeah. And you're incredibly prolific. Every time that I walk in here, your entire studio has shifted around or become like a completely new set of visuals. Like I've never, never seen these that are up here. Um, what are you actually working on now? Ooh, it's funny. It's, it must be workaholism when you think you've done nothing all the time. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I just came back from a visit to my mom and I was working on a piece and I, I had this flashback to a high school art project that was exactly the same image that I'm working with now, which is a positive and a negative of a figure of a silhouette. And it's like, you don't move one inch. And uh, I'm also reading a really interesting book about Jasper Johns, who I sort of ignored for a while. And and there's a point, John Yao wrote this book, it's kind of good. And John says, early on, he asked himself, what is it? He was interested in the idea of helplessness. What am I helpless to do that I cannot but do? Like, this is just something that nobody else does, but I do this. And some people get there quicker. I'm a little slow. Um, But apparently, we do something. We're kind of programmed to do something. 
And in the time I was away from New York for 10 years, you know, I always fantasized about getting out of making stuff, getting away from it. You know, enough. I don't have a gallery. I don't have a career. I don't have the patience for these people. Why am I bothering to do this shit? You know, what's the point? However, I'm always curious about how to make something. I, I want to see what it'll look like. There's something in me that wants to see. It's like a magic trick. Yeah. You want to make it appear somewhere. What would it look like if I did that? And it seems to be that simple and kind of idiotic. But, you know, a year ago I was in Spain. Before I came here, I, I was in Spain and I went to these caves. You know, I never cave painting. Who cares? Yeah. But really, you know, you go and you stand there in a cave. <laughs> it's like, dude, okay, your hand. Nice. Well done. But I, I was, here I'm standing in a cave. And now they discover these things are not 15,000 years old, but 40,000 years old. Yeah. Like this is right around the time the human morphed into whatever violent, crazy, insane creatures that we are now. And there's a picture there of like there was a tiny little painting of a star on the wall, a five-pointed star. And I have a Macy's card, which I like because it's got a five-pointed star in it, you know, and I like using it as a stencil because it's a star, you know. Stars, everybody likes a star. What the fuck? It means outer space? I don't know. But I thought, like it occurred to me, like at what point did this animal thing that stood up on two legs, at what point does it go, I know, a five-pointed thing on the wall. I'll make a star. Or at what point does it put its hand against the wall and blow pigment over it so it makes a print? And somehow, I don't think we've moved very far f since then, but it was a weird experience to suddenly have time flatten out and condense. Yeah. And you're standing there going, wow, I have the same fucking brain this guy had 40,000 years ago. Really, not much has changed. And I, I think it's, it kind of boils down to this, you know, you're, why did that guy do it? And what did the other cave grunters think, you know? Yeah. What's he doing over there? Why is he spitting on his hand? Is he sick? Um, who are your other cave grunters? Who are you, like, showing the work to now that you've re-entered New York and you're, like, back as an art handler and doing all this other stuff? I'm interested in, to hear how you've found this place again in terms of people, not just, like, a studio practice, but... It's funny how these things go. It seems that um, I didn't really do much to find this place. I just had this thought while I was I was in India at the time. I, I need a place. Maybe it's time to find an apartment just for fun, see what it's like again. And I looked on Facebook, and there, there's, there were images of these three rooms. That's the first thing I looked at. <laughs> and then it turns out I work with the guy, Ken, who's an artist also, who who runs this kind of you know he pays the rent to whatever the lady is and uh, I thought wow and then I said ah, so that's probably gone what idiot wouldn't have already snapped this place up and it was open so here I am and you know I'm not really good at I'm good with people but I, I'm not good with going in and begging to have my work shown so I have difficulty with that aspect so mostly my friends come through and see what I'm doing and I'm hoping that just by continuing to work and be available. You know, this Pioneer Works thing is kind of, thanks to you, has kind of opened out a lot of exposure to people. This is the kind of thing I really like, is that just people 
can come here and look or I can go there and, and look or talk to people or, you know, somehow a connection. I mean, that book, seriously, that Goner book, it was published and it's kind of remarkable. I never wrote a book before. I spent five years writing it. I really didn't seriously think it would get published. But the fact that you and Zach both read the book shocked me. Like, <laughs> you mean people are actually interested in that? I mean, I had to do it. Maybe it's therapy. I needed yeah. to do this. But it was kind of nice, the surprise of actually people being interested in it. give a little context where we're in what what appears to be like a commercial building on Broadway in Bushwick and you go up a flight of stairs and there's a long hallway full of like lofted classic lofted style artist studios with a shared kitchen it's where Christopher works it's where Lewis works and, and they both live here and um, it just has a special special feeling and I think the the reading you're talking about is the reading that happened at Pioneer Books that Christopher put on as part of the Paper Cuts reading series. Um, but I, I was hoping we could track a little bit more, like, I think this arc of, like, being in New York, disappearing for, you said, 10 years, and then coming back, like, I don't want to lose, lose like, this one amazing thing that you were, like, you were following someone else around for most of that time, and then you came, you came back. How do, how do you think your work was impacted by this experience of a totally different, I would, sounds to me, pretty radical kind of lifestyle? Radical in the sense that it was so different from what we think of as the life of a working artist like how just to track the arc a little bit more like you're back I have no idea what your studio looked like before you left 10 years ago but like there's all this stuff on the wand to me I'm just like okay well like all right this dude was following this other dude around he's got like all this you know like there's some there's something going on um what has it meant to you to have that experience and to have the book about it and then to to come back and try to kind of continue carry forward well it's pretty odd because this guy of the 10 years the first there was almost precisely five years that I spent with him uh, and this is a guy who in the strongest available terms denounced culture thinking anything that humans have come up with as destructive and um, uh, disruptive to the harmony of the body and also to nature and it played right into my sense of things and at a level of ideas I could um, kind of in uh, I was on the same page with this guy in terms of the way he saw things then there was this other kind of dimension of that experience which is all the things that people kind of talk about which are you know, having to do with spirituality or whatever that stuff is, this was someone who had given up everything, this guy, Yuji, had given up everything in the search to find out if there was anything to the idea of enlightenment, which is a classic Indian idea. And it's become really cheap, 
popularized and you know you can go to anybody you can go online in two minutes find a guru who will tell you that they are enlightened and then they'll tell you they'll show you how so here's a guy I go and meet him and I'm just curious is he full of shit or is he actually is there something to what he says because all these years I've been since I was in school I've been studying in, in a side track Advaita Vedanta or J. Krishnamurti was another one who modernized a lot of this traditional Indian philosophy. So here was a guy who suddenly seemed to me to have uh, some quality that I suspected maybe is, you know, maybe this is the thing. And because there were only about 10 people sitting in the room with him, I, I liked him even more because he didn't take money, he wasn't fucking around. And 99% of the people that I've seen and encountered are doing one of those two. So here's a guy, totally obscure. He claims to be famous, and he's a, it's a joke. Nobody really knows who he is. He gets away with murder saying crazy shit because no one cares. But he had a quality, and he lived in a certain way that was really a challenge to me. And I, and I kind of was, I was so curious about how he functioned. It ran, he told me all the whole time I knew him was after a little while we got to know each other, and because I'm a kind of a smart ass, we developed a rapport, which horrified all the uber religious people around him. But a part of what he would say to me was that I was the worst painter he'd ever met, and that I would never sell any of my artwork, and that it was crap, and that I should give, you know. And he pounded away at this, and I just took it as you know whatever, you know. He's that's he's just doing his thing with me. Um, but meanwhile, in a way, I've been thinking about this lady. It's kind of like tempering steel, someone explained to me at one point. They hammer it out, then they fold it over, then they hammer it out, then they fold it over, and then they hammer it out. And this strengthens the steel. And somehow this guy's hammering me and my kind of uh, question of why am I doing this and how, how can I continue doing this and... It just kept getting hammered. And in the meantime, I'm reading, for the first time, I actually started reading about Advaita Vedanta and some of the classic texts of the Astravakta Samhita and the Bhagavad Gita. And I'm listening to a guy who has a lot of firsthand experience with the spiritual fluff, which are like spiritual experiences and stuff, which people get very caught up in. But it's kind of distractive bullshit, actually. The only real, it seems like, if there was anything like uh, enlightenment, it would be the cracking of the personality, which means nirvana literally means to blow out, which means your, your personality is exploded in a microsecond, and then your body gets reshuffled. So it's a physical occurrence. He might be the first person in history to actually frame it as a physical occurrence rather than a spiritual thing. And this scientific thing appealed to me, and also the fact that I could see he was functioning differently. It's a hard thing to describe because I don't want to start into it because it becomes a promotion of that guy, which doesn't interest me. It kind of it, it contradicts the whole thing. But so what is the effect of this on me is a state of acute frustration. And then being like hammered with this situation and having a personal relationship with this woman that was also involved in the thing that was like living in a glass house for five years. It was a shitstorm, but it was the most interesting shitstorm imaginable just because suddenly I'm living out of a suitcase. I'm traveling all over the world. I never used to leave my studio. I went studio, job, studio, job, studio, job. Suddenly, I'm living out of a suitcase. 
Then the guy dies, and I'm kind of like, now what? But during that time, I was writing a lot, and because I wanted to figure out what you're asking me, (laughs) what the hell does this mean to my practice? Mm -hmm. How does this boil down into my life? And what do I tell people? People say, what did you get out of this? Why did you do it? You know, it becomes a big question mark. But I continued traveling for another five years. I wrote the book, and then I just didn't see any reason to stop traveling. And I continued working. And I think in the end, what I see in my work is that I've been dealing with issues of the head, the physical body, (laughs) and then the chaos inside it for all these years. And when I look back to work I did when I was starting, I have these images of targets in there, like a human target thing that I was making drawings of. It's the same image, you know? And so my concerns, I think, have always been where does the identity shape? How do thoughts form and shape things? And here was a guy who was addressing exactly that. How your operation, how your sense of identity operates, how it's, how it's collaged together from all the things you're told. And what he said, which I wouldn't know because I haven't experienced it, is that you are a collage of everything. It makes sense. You're a collage of everything you've been told. And then there's a mix of the physical organism that coordinates all that information and how you process that. In the process of that 10 years also, I mean, the question like, where is my free will? Where is my choice coming from an Irish Catholic suburban boring ass background? How do I end up sitting in a room with some Indian dude on the couch in Bangalore while he's smacking me over the head, telling me to make fun for these people in the room, you know, because that's basically, I turn into the class clown. I I was always a class clown, but he really pumped that role. You know, and he said, you need to go and, you know, be a comedian or something. I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to be on stage, you know. But what he was saying, what, to watch that guy and to also ask these questions of myself, I think what I end up with is now I have work that I really don't know. All I know is that I keep making it, and it seems to be about these things. I, don't know, I always feel like our... The creative process is almost like the spiral upward. Like you kind of keep coming to the same thing over and over again, circling back to it, just kind of from a different point, which is interesting to hear you talk about it. And then you see all these headless figures in your room, um, which has become kind of an icon for you in some ways. Like I associate a lot of the work that I've seen from you with this image. When we did that reading at Pioneer Books, there's a huge banner that you put over the window of someone with like with no head and just like blood dripping down or like spewing out into his coffee cup. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the, that image itself and how that developed and why you're uh, doing these stencils that we're looking at right now with the silhouette? Yeah, th- that image really appealed to me. It's a, it's, it's f- the idea comes from a North Indian tantric painting style called Chinamasta, which it'll show uh, Kali, who is the goddess uh, Shiva's consort, wife, whatever, girlfriend. Uh, Shiva and Kali are two central figures in Indian mythology. Anyway, up north things are a little darker. So in, in the northeastern sector of India, you'll find these paintings of a female figure with her head chopped off or chopping her head off or 
Um, and the idea behind that is that um, I love the imagery of these guys because it's really about how your head, your relationship to your own head is very peculiar. You can never see your own face. You can't see your own head. This is your main identity. This is the thing we all obsess about. How do I look? And you can never really, you can see it in a mirror, in a photograph, but you can never see it directly. The thing you're closest to, you can never actually see. So that kind of intrigue, that little puzzle there is interesting. And then this idea that a blowing out, the idea of enlightenment is is the severing, the, the severing of the personality, the, the discontinuity of thinking. It isn't that thinking goes away, it's that it stops for a fraction of a second and this reshuffles the way the body functions. So these images have, you know, there's the head and there's the body and it's kind of like a por it's a portrait, but of who, you know, and, and who we are is changing all the time, you know, and who we are is, is about the ingredients of kind of a cliche, a bunch of cliches just pinned together. Um, and I think these images have to do with that, that interest that I have in the, in these ideas, you know, sort of, I mean, hopefully it's not complete navel gazing, but it goes close, it gets pretty close, you know, uh, I guess it's, you know, funny way it's portraiture, but the, the headless thing is also about, I mean, to me, the negative, the apparent negativity of this guy, there's an Indian philosophy called neti neti, which is not this, not this. That's what it means. Yeah. So, what are you made up of? And they do a process of elimination. Well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And in the end, what are you left with? If you go far enough, you're left with nothing, which is kind of implied in the headless thing. It's like the, the freedom of not knowing is, is something that was really interesting about this guy. I said, you know, so what is it like to be in that situation that you're in. He said, it's like you're in a state of just wondering all the time. Like, what is that I'm looking at? Instead of always saying tree, house, woman, man, you know, and table, I'm Lewis. You're just sitting there looking yeah. at stuff. And there's nothing really, it's not that there's nothing going on. Everything is going on and going in. Whereas in my functioning, I'm constantly picking and choosing. So, if my antenna were broken, i.e. headless, i.e. you know, blown out, yeah. then you really don't know what's going on. Also forces you to look at like, everything really differently. Right? You just yeah. are looking, yeah. You can't really close it out. You can't block it out. We're, we're, we're sort of coming towards the end, okay. but I think we should talk about books. Yeah, yeah. Since it says paper cuts. Do you have a question about books, Chris? Yeah. Um, mm, we have 10 minutes before the meter expires. Can we, can we? I think that's a good, like. That's a, that's a hard deadline. Yeah. Nothing like a deadline. So, Louis, this is paper cuts. We brought you on here to, or you brought us in here to talk about your work, but also to talk about books um, outside of Goner. You're right now taking the Risograph course at Pioneer Works working with PJ from Endless Editions. Um, everyone tells me that it's an amazing class. Uh, you've put together a few zines already for your, your reading, um, and you even skipped out on our zine exchange, even though you made new zines for it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your, 
<laughs> I, I had I had to, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about getting back into books in the form of zines, how that's changed your process a little bit, and how are you finding the process of working with a risograph machine? How has that changed the work? That class is fantastic. And, uh, and what's great is to be around all these people who are doing this thing, which is something that is making me... I mean, it's giving me a way back in to an audience. And what's fantastic about that is that whole scene around Pioneer Works and the zines uh, and you having you here has been like a flashpoint for me to go into what's the most obvious thing, which is to produce these books. So as you can see, I went out and bought this printer and I've become kind of a maniac again with yet another obsession. So now I have stacks and stacks of paper and but I really love the idea of doing these books that can be distributed like the, in a zine and in these book fairs in this format um, to get these images out some way, in some way. And also for me, as you can see, I'm a I'm a yapper, so I can put some words with the pictures, which is kind of a treat for me, you know. And it's such an ad hoc, quick, easy way to do it. Uh, and I think I need that because otherwise I start thinking too much. It's also been interesting seeing you like rework uh, images from the your ten years traveling. Like you've been pulling apart things from your old sketchbooks and reorganizing them in these in these zines. So you're talking about time flattening out and this like strange collage. Like that's literally happening in these books that are colliding something from year one of you being away with year like seven, and all this all these different places where you've actually made those those images, um, what's it like kind of going back into that time period for you and uh, like ex excavating all this, all this material? Well, it's kind of, uh, it's showing me what was, what's kind of an amazing experience to have had. I'm, I just can't kind of can't believe, I didn't plan any of this this way. And yet I'm beginning to realize that this might be of interest to people because it just was so crazy what happened and what I did it seemed like the thing to do at the time, but, um, you know, it seems a little, you know, like, what the, you did what, you know, and you were how old, you know, I mean, and now I, I feel like, I don't know, it's just a great opportunity, to, and looking at these things just brings back all these stories, so it's kind of a great opportunity to tell stories in just a quick, easy way, I, I hope, something of interest to people. It always amazes me. You're interested in that? Oh, okay. I thought it was just me. Um, so it's kind of nice to have that that ability to communicate with people. That's really what it's about in the end. Yeah. You know, I mean, the guy put the star on the wall and blew that pigment over his hand so somebody would come along and look at it. Um, and we're all using the same eyeballs, so it's kind of curious to realize the slight variations in how other people see what I saw. You know, or what exactly from what I recorded, what does that do for somebody else? How does that impact other people? I'm always amazed. I get these emails from people who've read this book, and some of what they say is just completely insane. But uh, some of it's kind of curious, and, and it's nice, you know, or people say, thanks for writing that down. It was so interesting. And I'm like, really? Oh, well, good, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> So along the lines of being able to tell this story and get like find an audience, get this work out, um, is there a way that people can actually pick up your zines and books? Yeah, I'm hoping to find out about more of these fairs because this is where I'm going to start going. Uh, <laughs> That's available on Amazon. Um, 
and it's pretty easy to get, I think. Uh, there's a new publisher for it. It never ceases to amaze me that that book is available in there. So it's, but it is. It's it's available on Amazon. Um, yes, yeah, some are at Pioneer Books. I'm desperately trying to get myself to finish a few more so that I can go and put them there. Um, but I've been away and distracted and with summer things. But um, as you can see, I'm refilling my uh, my arsenal for a full attack of paper on somebody or bodies. Yeah, I'm hoping to get back over there. Zach's been really sweet about it, you know, letting me put things in the store. And I, I just feel like this is a great way to disseminate the work. You have a website? I do. It's uh, myname.com. Not my name, lewisbrawley.com. I should change it to myname.com. And it might be confusing for people. Oh, shit. Of course. Cool. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for inviting us into your studio and talking with us on Paper Cuts. I'm really looking forward to seeing you actually make this next zine and unleash the, unleash the arsenal on Zach, poor Zach, up on your books. <laughs> Can't wait. Thanks, you guys, for coming in here. It's really been nice. It's great. Should you do a station ID, like yeah. traditional paper cut style? So you say, uh, I forget, you tell him. You just say your name, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. Hi, this is Lewis Brown, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. Yeah.